Hi, writers. Welcome to our latest episode in our series of podcasts about writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer. What is one of the reasons we write? To have an effect on readers, to move readers, to excite them in an adventure or to have them swoon with a romance, to raise hackles with a horror novel, or to have them grip the chair arm while reading our thriller, uh, to perhaps have them look inward reading our drama, to bring forth an emotion in our readers is one of our goals. I was browsing through Harold Bloom's The Best Poems of the English Language, and when I came across William Blake's poem, The Tiger, the lyrics leaped off the page and brought forth the memory of my father who recited the poem. It was a terrific moment. William Blake's words causing my father's memory to rush at me. My father died at age 60 of colon cancer many years ago. I had forgotten about Dad loving that poem and about him once in a while reciting it. The memory of my father just rushed back at me, uh, thanks to reading the poem. The first stanza is this. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? I don't recall how much of the poem Dad knew, at least the first stanza of eight stanzas. I don't know if I ever knew why he memorized it. Maybe he did in high school. William Blake, the poet, lived from 1757 to 1827, and he made his living as an engraver. His poems were largely unknown during his lifetime. Harold Bloom, the critic, says Blake's poetry ranks behind only William Shakespeare and John Milton's. I wonder if the poet William Blake knew his poem would bring back a reader's wonderful memory of his father 200 years later. Maybe he did. There may be unexpected power in our words. We as writers don't know the effect our words will have on our readers next year or 10 years from now or in 200 years. But many of our words written today may echo down the generations, moving people. Words have an eternal, almost a magical power. And that's why we study writing. We'd like some of that magical power. Who knows who we will affect tomorrow and years from now. A novel is a circle. All questions should be answered at the end. Everything should be tied up. A novel uh, isn't like life, where weird things can happen that are never resolved, where blind luck may seem to play a part, where a cause may have no effect and an effect may have no cause. In real life, a stimulus may get no response. A response may not have a detectable stimulus. At times, our real lives uh, can seem haphazard. Not all the time, certainly. Uh, not most of the time. 
But once in a while, odd, unexplainable things happen in our real lives. But a novel isn't real life. A novel is a construct. It is a crafted piece of plotting. Jack Bickham's book, Scene and Structure, is one of the best books on novel writing I've ever come across. Were a new writer to ask me what should be my first text on writing, I'd say Jack Bickham's Scene and Structure. Jack Bickham says that the simple laws of cause and effect, stimulus and response, have everything to do with understanding structure in a novel. What do cause and effect have to do with fiction? He asks everything, that's all. Popular fiction isn't real life, he says. While the workings of luck, coincidence, fate, and so forth may be shown from time to time, fiction must make more sense than real life. If general readers are to find it credible, says Jack Pickham. So in real life, he says, for example, someone may fall ill for no apparent reason and with no evident cause. In fiction, the character would have to be seen depressed about recent developments and tired from overwork. He would then have to be seen walking into an office or home where people were already sick with the dread illness. And then one of the sick persons might even have to sneeze in his face, all before the reader would find credible what in real life would happen without apparent cause. This is Jack Bickham in his uh, book, Scene and Structure. He goes on, to restate this differently, in fiction, effects, plot developments, must have causes, background, and vice versa. If you want someone to fall ill and want the reader to believe it, you must first build in the background, perhaps a raging epidemic. A character who is overworked and weary and who's also is, is depressed enough to have a poorly functioning immune system. And then you have to provide the more immediate, the present story time, cause. The entering of the house and finally the deadly sneeze. Jack Pickham says, much of plotting from chapter to chapter deals with this kind of juggling of events so that one thing leads logically to another, cause and effect fashion. Writers over the years have probably sweated enough to fill Lake Erie as they tried to figure out how to motivate Priscilla to open the locked door, the cause, or what next might happen after she did so, which is the effect. Jack Bickham continues, In real life, blind luck has to be accepted because, after all, there it is. It just happened. Period. But the fiction reader demands more credibility than he usually gets in real life. So it's up to you, the fiction writer, to build your story in such a way that every cause you put in has an effect downstream in the story, sooner or later, and preferably sooner, and for every effect you plot out, you have to figure out a cause that would make it happen. Jack Bickham goes on, once you ha are good at this as a writer, you can make almost anything happen in your story. 
All you have to do is figure out what is to cause it. And once you have had that particular thing happen, with good reason, then your next plotting step is infinitely simpler because all you have to do is take the next logical step and ask yourself, now that there has, now that that has happened, what does it in turn uh, cause to happen? Uh, Jack Bickham says, however, this kind of cause and effect planning and story presentation does more than simply help the reader suspend disbelief. Because this kind of presentation shows a world in which things do make sense, in which everything isn't just meaningless chaos and chance, the resulting story also has the effect of offering a little hope to the reader, a suggestion by implication that life doesn't have to be meaningless and that bad things don't always have to happen to good people for no reason. A hint that maybe the reader can seize some control of his own life after all, and that good, effect, uh, that good effort may sometimes actually pay off, and our existence may indeed even have some kind of meaning. That's Jack Bickham in his uh, book, Scene and Structure. He goes on to say, we constantly struggle to make our fiction credible, however, because our readers can at any moment stop believing the story. Therefore, in even the simplest transactions in fiction, we must always remember a few simple rules. Here are Jack Bickham's rules for cause and effect. Stimulus must be external, that is, action or dialogue, something that could be witnessed if the transaction were on a stage. The response must also, also be external in the same way. For every stimulus, there must, you must show a response. For every desired response, you must provide a stimulus. Response usually must follow stimulus at once. When response to stimulus is not logical on the surface, you must ordinarily explain it. Then Jack Bickham gives this example. If we write, Joe threw the ball, you must show uh, Sam's reaction, such as Sam caught it, or Sam dropped it, or Sam didn't see it and hit him in the, it hit him in the nose, or something similar, an immediate response. How can something as simple as uh, this get messed up? One, uh, one sees it messed up all the time. And consider this transaction, uh, Jack Bickham says. Joe threw the ball. Quote, sure is a nice day, Sam said. Stimulus and response cause and effect. Uh, some things, some stimulus should be immediately responded to. Cause and effect can have a greater time period. Uh, but... Something happening later in the novel and effect should have a cause earlier in the novel, and causes earlier in the novel should have an effect later. And for that reason, I want to emphasize again how important tying things up is, and so how important for us a tie-up-later list might be. The famous example, if a writer shows the reader a pistol in a drawer in chapter 4, uh, 
That pistol must be explained by the end of the novel. If a writer mentions that Rob is sneezing all the time, those sneezes should be explained by the end of the book. And there's a reason for this. Readers are looking for clues, and they, they're aware that the writer is going to leave clues. They're, they're also aware that some of them will be red herrings, false clues, and they want to try to anticipate the end of the novel. That's part of the fun of reading. But if you leave a clue, a, a, a cause or a stimulus that isn't wrapped up toward the end, they'll remember it. If it's not explained by the end of the novel, the reader will feel uh, that something's wrong with the novel, that uh, she's been cheated. Uh, As I mentioned uh, earlier, this rule is called Chekhov's gun. That's why I keep, and you might consider keeping a tie-up later list. A novel can take a long time to write, and we'll certainly remember the main plot points, the the main causes and effects, but there are some smaller things that we probably should uh, remember, uh, we likely should remember, and a tie-up later list will save us from cheating the reader by having a cause with no effect or an effect with no preceding cause. So I have a separate document on my computer. It's called the tie-up later list, and I'll say chapter one explain why the fish died in the aquarium. Well, if I have fish die in the aquarium in chapter one, the reader will be upset if I haven't explained that by the end of the story. They'll remember it. I might not remember it without a tie-up later list, but the reader will remember it. Consider keeping a tie-up later list, and, and uh, we should remember Jack Bickham's uh, terrific instruction in his book, Scene and Structure. Unlike real life, a novel is a circle where all questions are answered. Jack Bickham uh, reminds us how to close the circle. Let's talk for a minute, and it'll only be a minute, about our manuscripts format, how it looks uh, on the screen, and in fact, if it's ever printed out, how it would look there. Uh, Literary agent Lisa Collier-Cool says, quote, it's especially important for a new writer to make a positive first impression. Studies show that a durable opinion is formed within the first 15 seconds of acquaintance, making it vital that you introduce yourself to the magazine via your query in just the right way. She's talking about magazines, but it also includes uh, submitting to agents and editors. Irrespective of the way we prefer our manuscripts to look on our computer uh, screens, when it is uh, submitted to an agent or a publisher, it should follow a standardized, the industry standard format. And here are a few uh, industry uh, standards. Uh, The uh, manuscript should have one-inch margins on all the sides, both sides and the top and the bottom, except the first page of each chapter, which should begin halfway down the page. Uh, 
The font should be uh, 12 point and probably Times New Roman, although I think some others are also good. Page numbers uh, should be centered at the top of each page, but should not be on the first page of the novel. So we have to learn how to suppress the first uh, page's page number. Line spacing, uh, spacing should be even with the same amount of space between lines, which is a double space, within the paragraph as between the paragraphs. In other words, uh, within a paragraph, we should double space, and then when one paragraph ends and another begins, it should also be a double space, not a triple or a quadruple space. Uh, the, and the uh, topic about headers, and that's where your name and the uh, perhaps the title of the novel appears automatically at the top of every page. The literary agent Donald Moss once told me that he doesn't like headers in a manuscript. He said something like, what does the author think I'll do? Be carrying two manuscripts and trip over my feet and throw them in the air where they all get mixed together? Uh, Donald Moss convinced me I no longer put a header at the top of my pages. Uh, the only thing there is a, is a page number. Uh, a page without a header has a, a cleaner and more inviting look. Many novels have more than one scene in a chapter. If uh, your novel has so, consider uh, between scenes, use a quadruple space, and in the middle of it, uh, use uh, uh, four centered asterisks. This alerts the reader that uh, one scene has ended and another will begin. That's all I know about format, but it's important to get things right in our manuscript when we submit them to editors and agents. Uh, we should use the industry standard so that they don't even think about uh, our format. They should uh, think about our story. In an earlier episode, we talked about interior monologue, which is where a character, where a character thinks. Um, I want to return to it. Uh, earlier, we talked about how it slows the plot. The English novelist and playwright Somerset Maugham said, quote, There are three rules for writing the novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. That's Somerset Mom. This might be one of them. Don't have your character think a lot. Thinking cannot be acted out on a stage. It isn't visual, and for the reader of fiction, it isn't as engaging as action or dialogue or even uh, descriptions of, of a setting. Uh, writers of romance, uh, women's fiction, Literary novels are, are particularly prone to letting their protagonists think on and on, setting out in sentence after sentence the character's precise feelings, sharpening and sharpening the emotional pencil down to a nub. But for writers of all genres, the tendency to write down the character's thoughts at great length is tempting. And why is it so appealing uh, for us writers? A couple of reasons. First, it's easy. There's little reason to be logical or to bother with cause and effect, which is critical in writing dialogue and in action scenes. 
Tom Clancy said, the difference between fiction and reality, fiction must make sense. Second, we may be writing too much interior monologue because we don't have enough story. We haven't figured out enough compelling incidents for the novel, so we pad it with characters' long ruminations. We should resist the temptation to load up on the characters' thoughts. Interior monologue is a fancy way of saying thinking. Usually of all the parts of a novel, such as action and dialogue and the the narrator, the writer's description of things, a character's interior monologue is the least interesting. Much of it is uh, navel-gazing, which is where a character thinks about how she feels about things. A novel is a series of scenes. Of scenes, uh, Jack Bickham, the the novelist and writing teacher, says a scene is this. It's a segment of story action, written moment by moment, without summary, presented on stage in the story now. It is not something that goes on inside a character's head. It is physical. It could be put on the theater stage and acted out. This sentence from Jack Bickham is the most important sentence about writing fiction I've ever read. Every word of it has a meaning, and it's concise and accurate. Thinking cannot be acted out on a stage. When a character is thinking, nothing is going on for the reader to watch. And another thing about uh, interior monologue. We writers are always advised to show rather than tell. He scratched his arm is showing, his arm itched is telling. Those are the two sentences I keep in mind whenever I'm wondering about the difference. It's a critical distinction, showing versus telling, because showing makes a story more vivid and believable for the reader. A problem with interior monologue is that it is telling rather than showing. The character who is doing all the thinking is simply telling the reader what she's thinking rather than showing the reader with action and dialogue. Here's a short example of that. Uh, Allison is our first-person narrator, and she's thinking, I was attracted to John. This is interior monologue, and it's telling the reader. It's, It's also boring. Here's how the writer would show the reader. This is Allison. I leaned toward him, and I placed my lips on his, and they were parted. That's action, and it shows the reader what she's thinking. Here's another short example. She knew she would be hungry and wanted to take a sack lunch. Well, that's interior monologue. Our character's thinking those things. It's telling the reader. Here's how to show it's dialogue. Quote, Mom, I'm going to go, I'm going to be gone all day. Can you make me a sandwich? Question mark. Here the reader learns the character's hungry with dialogue. Dialogue is almost always more interesting than interior monologue, and it shows the character's condition, hunger, rather than tells. We're going to 
pause our discussion about interior monologue, but we'll continue uh, in our next episode. There's some really good ways to avoid our character thinking too much, and we'll talk about them next time. Until then, I'm glad you were along for this episode. This is Jim Thayer, and I'll see you next time. Please keep tapping those keys. 